0: Thanks for listening to A Podcast, the podcast that talks all about the Southern Resident Killer Whales. J-Pod, K-Pod, and L-Pod, the now 73 orcas on the brink of extinction. I'm Allison Morrow, and today we are talking to a federal fisheries biologist with NOAA, Don Norin. And Don, you study physiology of these whales and the complicated story behind the question, why are they dying? Which we often hear the fish problem because these whales are fish eaters, unlike a lot of other orcas that eat marine mammals, like seals and sea lions. They prefer Fur fish, they like salmon, we know Chinook salmon aren't doing very well, so that's led a lot of people to put those two together and say, well, they're clearly starving. Your research is showing that there's maybe a lot more mystery to that than we often talk about. So let's first start with what is your research? How do you do it?
1: So I'm a physiologist and my hands are in all the pots of all the risk factors. Our major risk factors are vessel impacts um, from sound or just presence, um, lack of prey, high contaminant loads Um, there's also the potential for inbreeding which may also have a predisposition for these animals to not be very fit Um, and so recently i've been very interested in understanding what does bad body condition mean so you see the picture of the skinny whales and often it's said they're starving to death Um, so what i've been doing recently is trying to understand What do these skinny whales, uh, what does it mean when they're skinny? So I've been looking at a lot of the necropsy reports. So when an animal comes to shore and we get a body, we do a lot of measurements, or the vets that do all this, I have to say, I fortunately just get the data. Um, They do a lot of sampling, they do measurements, and I've been trying to understand when we know the cause of death, what does the body condition look like? So basically what we've seen from all kinds of whales, including southern residents, but any killer whale that we see up and down the coast that we get a necropsy report from, is that skinny whales are either starved or they're actually sick, like fungal infections, septic infections, um, babies that couldn't nurse or had some other congenital issue versus the whales that are struck by vessels. Um, Those whales are in great shape, um, really robust. There was one, J34, that was a Southern resident killer whale who um, his necropsy report showed that he was very robust, very fit, with great blubber layer and a good body condition. Um, we had a female that was um, had a fetus inside and the fetus died and she became septic and she had not so great body condition because she was really sick we actually haven't had a body come up that was a southern resident that has starved Um, there were some transients in Alaska that swam up a river these are the mammal eating whales they never found any mammals to eat and so they actually ended up starving and um, they looked like a sick whale as well just with the morphometric measurements, the lengths and girths, and trying to understand condition. So um, I think, you know, I'm trying to figure out how, what do these whales that die of different uh, reasons, how do they look, and if we can actually differentiate. Unfortunately, it seems like from just a picture, you can't differentiate an animal that's sick versus an animal that's not eating. I think we need to keep all the risk factors um, still in our mind. These whales, these southern residents, have high population. breeding potentially and may be um, having some genetic issues that predispose them to getting ill we also have a high uh, contaminant load and these contaminants also affect health so that sick animals um, animals get sick more readily or can't come out of being sick um, so these are the kind of things that I've been working on and trying to understand the impacts of these other risk factors um, we also have the potential for vessels to not um, really allow these animals the time they need to find the few fish that might be left. Um, the noise does distract them from for finding fish or just presence that will change their behavior. So, um, I've been looking at kind of the energetic um, and um, conditioned consequences of not being able to forage around the vessels that's something that I'm starting. So can't really talk about the results yet, but.
0: All right. But I'm sure you'll break the news on this podcast. (laughs) Um, All right. So let's go to really the main point I guess you're trying to make here is that um, there could be this circular effect. It doesn't necessarily mean you're not throwing out this uh, idea that they are perhaps and maybe even likely not eating enough it's just why aren't they eating enough is it just because there aren't enough fish or is it also because they can't find them or because they're sick and they don't want to eat or because they are eating and they can't metabolize it so all of those factors, why would it be important, I guess, and maybe this sounds like a dumb question, but as a scientist, why would it be important that you try to really track all of those veins instead of what a lot of people say, which is right now, uh, you know what, let's just focus on the fish issue because nothing else matters. If we can just get them enough fish, everything will be fine.
1: I wish it was that simple. I don't think it is necessarily. So I I mean, obviously we should get them more fish, um, but I think there's so many other impacts that we're not aware of. Um, to go back into the necropsy reports and then see that more animals have actually died of uh, boat strike or unknown trauma than I was aware of is a little surprising. So you take out one animal or two animals every couple of years from that, and it's a kind of a big impact on a, a population that's small. So. Um, And also the other thing with the fish is the fish are impacted by contaminants as well. Their behavior, their reproduction is affected by contaminants. So if we got them more fish, we also need to make sure the environment is clean. That's good for the fish. That's also good for the whales. The high contaminant loads in the whales could have reproductive issues. We have um, high offloading from the mom's milk into the calves very early after they're born, which is really detrimental potentially for these calves' health.
0: Tell us a little bit more about your research with the contaminant transfer from the mom to the calf because I think that's really interesting especially since we also know with some of the research out of the University of Washington's uh, Center for Conservation Biology that about 70 percent of the pregnancies are ending in miscarriage and that even some of these babies just don't make it like everybody watched J35 push her dead calf which they said was alive for a little bit and then just died suddenly after about 30 minutes. I just think that's an interesting thing that seems like we don't talk about a whole lot and your research is showing is probably a pretty big problem. Right.
1: So from the samples that people have collected in the past using biopsies um, and also other populations, you can tell that once a female starts reproducing, her contaminant load goes down. Because it is um, these contaminants that are studies, these persistent organic pollutants like DDTs, um, PCBs, and PBDEs, they are lipophilic. They love to be associated with fat. And so they are transferred from the mom's milk to the calf. What we didn't know is what the transfer rates are. How much of her load is transferred to her calf? And is this a gradual process over the year or so that they're nursing or is it really quick? So you can't really answer that question in the wild. So I went to SeaWorld and I was able to um, get samples while they were still breeding their their female killer whales of a couple of uh, females. That were lactating so we collected milk from the females every couple weeks for 15 months and uh, serum to look at the body levels for the moms and the calves and then we also have um, archive serum just to understand you know what the levels how the body um, levels change with subsequent calves so it was really um, eye-opening and actually a little sad to see is that when we were able to attract this one female and calf for over 15 months the offloading in the milk happened really quickly. So the higher levels of contaminants in the milk were found in the first couple months after birth, which means the calves that are newborn that are still developing, because mammals are born um, still with a lot of neurological development and they're still susceptible to illnesses, they're getting their higher doses early on after birth, which um, could potentially be a cause of, um, of death for some early calves, especially the firstborns that get the huge doses when their moms have not been reproducing, they're the ones that are getting the biggest dose. And so I think we need, we need to keep contaminants in mind as a potential for issues with reproduction, particularly for calf loss. If females haven't reproduced for a long time, they're building up the stores of contaminants in between those um, births. And also if they've never reproduced, they have, have a lot to pass on.
0: Okay, J50 was uh, about a three-year-old calf that you worked on, case-wise, not actually the whale, but you worked on the case of this whale, right? Because she was, um, it looked like she was dying. She did subsequently disappear. And she had this uh, indentation that a lot of people call peanut head. And so there was this race to try to save her. Part of that included trying to administer some kind of antibiotic. Could you tell us a little bit about what that case taught you i guess on one level too it just goes to show like you never got her body she just disappeared which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of these whales we just had three from each pod disappear they're determined to be dead uh, but we don't know what happened to them they're gone um and so that leaves a lot of mystery for you let's talk j51st and just what that case i guess and the mystery of that case and and what you learned from that what did it teach you
1: Okay, I wasn't on the water, so but I uh, because I've been looking at necropsy reports and trying to understand body ignition, I did provide some information to estimate how thick the blubber layer of that calf was because one of the interventions was to provide some uh, medicine through injection. So um looking at you know just the length of that animal and the b- and the blubber thicknesses we have from similarly sized animals that we have necropsies, I could um, give them an estimate for uh, blubber thickness and they could get the the vets could get the needle depth, correct. Um, we also looked at the length that was me- has been measured by the photogrammetric studies from the air, as well as um, more lengths provided from necropsy reports and have, you know, were able to basically um, corroborate what people have been saying. This calf was actually not just skinny, but she was actually kind of short for her age. And people who had seen her after birth had Uh, commented that she seemed relatively short. So she might have had some stunted growth or some growth issue from the beginning, or just been kind of a sickly whale. um, Because few samples were collected that, you know, there were some there was a um, attempts to get samples, but not a lot of samples could be collected. So there wasn't really a definitive illness that could be applied to her case. And without a body, of course, we couldn't figure out what the final cause of death was. So um, it was unfortunate to watch this whale obviously lose condition over time. You know, that peanut head is, um, when whales have that peanut head, it's, it's pretty much uh, kind of on death's door. I mean, there have been a couple whales in the past that have come back from that. But for the most part, once you see that, it's not a good sign at all. And the whale is going to eventually die. And we've seen it in a few whales, but we still don't really totally know exactly what it is. Right. So with the necropsy data that I've been looking at, um, a- animals that have really bad condition, um, for southern residents, we haven't had any bodies that have shown that they have died from starvation. But there have been ill whales, whales with a fungal infection, a septic whale, um, things like that. So we do see a reduction in blubber thickness. We see a reduction in how robust the animal looks. Um, and then, you know, animals killer whales that have starved, some transients that swam up a river, looked very emaciated, they start losing that fat pad. That's kind of a, a fat store, but that's kind of like the place that when you start seeing a dip there, that's really concerning because they've been losing condition elsewhere that you just don't see very much. But that that dip in that peanut head is kind of the extreme. It's really looking bad at that stage. A lot
0: of times we hear people say, okay, they're not getting enough to eat, so that means they're metabolizing their blubber, their contaminants in their blubber, and so then when they do that, they are using up their fat stores because they're not getting enough to eat. That releases these toxics into their bloodstream, and that makes them sick. You're saying the research is kind of challenging that idea. Why is
1: that? So other studies on dolphins previously have shown that animals with high blubber levels will also have high blood levels, even if they're still eating. So healthier animals that are still eating will still have circulating uh, high contaminant loads. We also have been able to get samples from necropsies from SeaWorld to match blubber to blood of the same individuals. Um, Those SeaWorld whales have less contaminants, but the story is still the same. Basically, higher load in the blubber equates to higher load in the serum. So we still need to be worried about these contaminants because the males in particular are building up high levels over time, and they're not able to dump them into the calves. Um, so they're they're having high levels in the blubber that are also circulating in their blood. Um, even if they're eating, they're going to have higher levels in the blood that can affect their physiology and potentially make them sick.
0: Moving forward with... The research that you're doing right now and what other scientists are working on. We have this task force that was created by the governor, and everyone's trying to figure out what to do. This research seems very complicated. It feels like it's going to take a long time. The whales don't seem to have a long time.
1: What do we do? Well, I mean, as a NOAA scientist, I am providing the data and the research results to the managers that make the decisions, um, and they are evidence based. So, you know, there, are, For every decision that is great for the whales, there's another that same decision is not so great for some other person that has a vested interest. So in the government, they need data-driven uh, policy. And that is kind of where my work goes. And I am actually very thankful that I'm not a manager <laughs> because it's a very complicated, difficult place to be in. And as a scientist, I can basically tell people what my research means and the implications for management, but I actually don't put the management actions in.
0: Linda Rhodes, who works in this very same building for NOAA, just like you, she studies uh, parasites, I guess, in the water that get through our sewage and or maybe even animal fecal material that are hurting the whales. Um, Is that something that you've also considered in your
1: research that could be making them sick? Well, yeah. So she does some pathogen work and other people are doing parasites. Um, I think Absolutely, this is a concern, especially when you see an animal in a bad state, a bad body condition. If you have a high parasite load, the animal will be in bad condition. There was a killer whale in the the Stranding database, not a southern resident, that had a high parasite load and had terrible condition. And they think that it was a huge cause of that animal's decline was actually a parasite load. So that's something. And then the pathogens and other things that are in the water, like the fungal infections, those are obviously a concern as well, because, you know, you can take out a couple of whales with that. And with a small population, a couple whales is a big impact.
0: You're trying to, even in the complexity, nail down some specifics, if you can, about why these whales are dying and... At the same time, there's this conversation about just, again, like we talked about getting them more fish. If you oversimplify this conversation, whether it's about the science or the policy side of it, what's at risk?
1: Yeah, what's at risk is um, missing something that's really important that could be taking a lot of the whales out or assuming that if it's one thing, we don't have to worry about these other things. Um, For example, the prey issue. So mostly the main point that a lot of people want to drive home it's prey, it's prey, it's prey, bring back the prey absolutely part of the equation we need to obviously keep our eye on that and you know there's a lot of salmon recovery going on so hopefully some of that will help Um, but we can't dismiss the vessels so then there's other people that say oh the vessels, it doesn't matter the vessels don't matter because it's just the prey but that's exactly the attitude that I'm nervous about because there are plenty of studies on the vessel impacts which I was involved with um, 15 years ago that show that these animals switch from foraging and go into travel when there's too many vessels or they're too close or there's too much sound and they can't actually hear their echoes coming back from the fish, they can't even potentially um, coordinate their social behavior. So you could say it's fished, we don't need to worry about anything else, but except they're not separate. These whales are working in an ecosystem that's very complicated with the disease in the water, with pathogens, with parasites, and with noise. And so if they already are having a potential Low distribution of fish to go after. If you add the noise and making it harder for them, it's going into a store with a blindfold. And let's say you have one item on a shelf and you have 10 shelves and each item, there's only one item per each shelf. I mean, how are you going to find that food? So we can't just separate it and dismiss the other risk factors.
0: What do you think about their absence from the Salish Sea this summer? They've been seen. I feel like a record low amount of times. I mean, they're just not here, and we know there's some Chinook salmon off the coast right now, and they've been spending more time off the west coast. Does that
1: have any influence on your research at all? Um, I am not on the water. It definitely will influence the people that are gonna go up there in September. Um, I was really happy to see them. I was on vacation in the San Juans on the day they came back. So I got to see them, and it is really bizarre to be up there and not have them be a regular presence. I also am hopeful in that they have adapted their behavior to hopefully find some good fish elsewhere. So yes, they're consuming salmon, and we know that you know this year has been kind of bad. Um, and then it doesn't help that there's been a slide in the Fraser River for the next you know years to come that's going to impact that. Um, but in a way, I'm hopeful that they are actually being successful elsewhere and that they are adaptive and resilient to try to find food where the food would be good to get, and obviously I'm not out there to see it. Um, I haven't seen pictures, um, and we'll see what happens. I guess next year. Um, but I'm hopeful that this is just showing that they can adapt.
0: Do you have hope for these whales? I ask everybody that. Do you think that we still have a chance, or we passed due, past time on taking action?
1: It's hard. I uh, was one of the scientists that was hired here when we started working on this problem in 2003 and um, when after I first got hired they had an increase and they almost reached 90. I was like great I'll be out of a job in a good way but now you know it is this constant potential decline that is lower, lower than any number that's been in recent decades, lower than I have seen since I started working on this problem and so um, it's very difficult to be optimistic But I'm happy there are two calves right now, and I'm really hoping that they survive. Um, And I'm hoping that with more education and more, you know, there's a lot of um, press about this recently. I mean, we've been doing this since 2003. The Center for Well Research has been around for longer. And, you know, now it seems like at least the general public is really, really keyed in on this. So if everyone just think about the stuff that they can do, if it's writing letters or you know just being a little more aware of what you do in your own yard with your car or anything like that, then I have hope. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a optimist. I'm usually a, a glass half full person. Um, it's been really depressing in the last couple of years to see this population continue, but as long as we keep having calves, I'm still hopeful.
0: Okay, Don Norrin, federal fisheries biologist with NOAA's Northwest Fisheries Science Center. Thanks for being on the podcast today.